Before that, let's get into the Word. I don't have a title this week, this month. Um, I, I was questioning for a while if I even had a sermon, which is odd because you have a thousand sermons. You have things you can talk about. I, I can honestly, no joke, probably come up with something in my sleep to talk about that I would be passionate about in regards to the Lord. So I don't ever worry about it. I don't have fear like, oh, it's going to get to four o'clock and I'm not going to know what to say. Uh, I don't do that, but I do like to have felt like I heard from the Lord, really lead my steps into a text and really give me this thing and this thing, or at least the, the path. Don't have to walk me down it yet, but just that, that direction. Um, and instead of one, add three or four or five, you know, all these little thoughts kind of mashed together and I'm wrestling with and thinking about and praying over all week long, all week long. And I started to communicate with Brian about what we do on the screens and basically just kind of got down to, look, I don't have a title and I don't have many screens. I've got some text and I know where I want to go. So let's just wing it. And so in some ways, that's what we're doing today. In another way, I am always really thrilled when this happens. It doesn't happen a lot, but I love it when it happens because I know that the Father knows so much more than we do. He knows where He wants to go. He knows that if He could just get us to listen and step, we get to step into things we couldn't have imagined. We get to take this thing into a different direction and different roads. And so I'm really excited today about where the Father might land us. And it might be a, a, a little short thing and we'll know that it's over and we'll sense, I'll sense it, you'll sense it, we'll know it. And it might go off in a different tangent. I'm okay with that. Um, that's the beauty of, of the Word. You don't ever know exactly where the Father's going to find you, where it's going to land. And so I want to take you um, into 2 Corinthians 10, all right? We are going to read a text that I... Um, I'm going to show, I'm going to share two different translations with you. We're going to read it. We traditionally read out of the new King James. That's what we're going to do because it's a little more familiar in the English. Then we're going to move over and read a few verses out of the NRSV. That's the new revised standard version. I want to do this because I want to show the, the change in the translation to try to bring us a little closer to the Greek. Um, it's a popular text. I don't want to work with every word, every sentence. I'm not going to break this down expository, work it top to bottom, but I do feel like there's a tone set in this text that helps get me towards something I've been wrestling with and I've been working with. So familiar passage for all of us. I think you've read it many times before. Of course, it's Pauline, meaning Paul is the writer. Corinth is the church. Deep into his second letter, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you that I, Paul, myself, could indicate that at times the handwriting looked differently. He might be using someone else to write through. He speaks to writers a lot, and they will write for him for whatever reasons. But it seems as if Paul picks up the pen here and says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In presence, I'm lowly among you, being absent on both towards you. Paul knew something about his own character. This is as much exposition as I give here. I promised not exposition, but... Paul knew about his own character that he could be rather bold in person, um, or rather bold, rather bold when absent. I mean, in your presence, I'm lowly among you, but being absent, I'm bold towards you. In other words, sometimes I ride a little strident, a little bold. It's what he's going to do here. Two, I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. And here it comes. For though we do walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Popular text. We've quoted this, especially in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, as a sort of segue scripture, like a door to lead us into the teaching on the gifts of the Spirit or the power of the Spirit. Is to say, look, the powers of this world are one way, but the power of the Holy Spirit is another way. It doesn't operate according to the flesh, which I thought was a bit ironic in Pentecostal circles. Because here we were really pumping the emotion of the flesh and then quoting, we don't war according to the flesh, we war according to the spirit, which I thought was just a touch of irony. Uh, we walk in the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh for indeed we live, uh, no, let's go back. We lost four. <laughs> we didn't lose it. We just, okay. We didn't lose it. We just don't have it. There it is. Verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not Carnal, popular text. Most of us could quote this even if we don't know the chapter, verse, or book. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, or as the old King James says, mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, 
casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. It's a wordy. It's a bit clunky. We moved quickly, and so therefore it's a little hard to kind of land on where Paul is. But the highlights, of course, jump at all of us because we've heard them. Our wep- we're not warring according to the flesh. Weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of whatever a stronghold is. It's through God that we pull those things down. And we bring our thoughts into the obedience of Christ. And in the middle of all that wordiness where we kind of get lost is in that word flesh. We are in the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh. And what that often means in our vernacular has to do with swords, guns, tanks, missiles, that our battlefield, this is how a lot of us have taught this, our battlefield doesn't look like the battlefields of the world. The battlefields of the world involve death and mayhem and destruction and war, but the battlefields of the believer happen in the invisible. They happen in the mental realm or they happen in the spiritual realm. Interestingly enough, we say that, but we don't really live that. Because we turn right around and battle our neighbor in much of the same way that the fleshly world would battle their neighbor. And, and that's physical confrontation or verbal confrontation. And I don't know why we're so slow to really take in what Paul's trying to say. Other than maybe sometimes it's a translation issue. So in light of that, let's try another one, shall we? We'll drop the two verses in front. We'll drop the two verses behind so the context gets a little tighter. Maybe the text gets a little cleaner. So here it is in the NRSV, 3, 4, and 5. Same chapter. Indeed, we live as human beings, but we don't wage war according to human standards. Well, that's better. So the standard of how we conflict should be different seen through the lens of a kingdom child, which is us. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human. Sometimes they are a little human, but they're not merely human. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. So whatever I, wherever I'm fighting from is in the realm of divinity. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God and we take those thoughts captive to obey Christ. And so it would appear that Paul is telling us that we do not solve our issues in the same manner that humankind solves theirs and the obstacle that seems to be the humankind are thoughts and arguments and proud obstacles that come up against the knowledge of Christ. Sounds to me like a bunch of stuff happening right here. And so this has sort of become a battlefield of the mind text that we are fighting these thoughts. I want to take it a different direction a little bit. I don't doubt that, that Paul means we're, we're fighting it up here. And I don't doubt that Paul realizes there's an invisible battle that doesn't look like Roman legions fighting in the field. That you and I don't solve our issues spiritually by going to war with another country or by fighting our neighbor physically. That we have something much deeper going on, much more cerebral, shall we say, much more spiritual. I don't doubt all of that. It's true. But I think there's something more going on here because of the tone and the nature of the way the Apostle Paul has approached Christianity. I want you to think in terms of who we're talking about. Paul, formerly Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And whether you know his history or not, I'll give you the little Cliff Notes version. This guy, prior to meeting Christ, was probably easily the most educated man in Judaism on the planet in the middle of the first century. He had been educated in the most advanced schools of Jewish thought, He was the leading figure in the persecution of the early church. He had been trained as a Pharisee, which means that before his bar mitzvah, he had the Torah memorized. This is a guy who knows his own religious heritage, literally frontwards and backwards. He literally has this applied to memory and it has become a part of his existence. He's smarter. Let me say it this way. He's smarter in the book than Peter, James, John, and the leaders of the Christian church of the first century. Hands down smarter. There's no way this group of relatively uneducated men know the scripture like Saul of Tarsus. None of that saves Saul. None of that puts him on good ground. In fact, Saul is a terrorist of sorts, a murderer. He, he may not ever actually slit a throat, but he consents to the death even of Stephen in the book of Acts. He stones, has 
authorizes the stoning to death of the first Christian martyr, someone who's pleading the forgiveness of Christ onto his killers. And here's the, the coats being laid at the feet of Saul of Tarsus, the great terrorist of that early portion of the book of Acts. So knowledge didn't save him. Wisdom didn't save him. Education didn't save him. He doesn't bemoan any of those things, but it doesn't do it for him. And no evangelism had won him to the Lord. I don't know if Peter, James, or John tried to win Saul of Tarsus to Jesus. We don't have any evidence of that. Um, it's likely someone tried to introduce him to Christ, but it didn't work. So here's the important thing to note. Saul becomes Paul not because he's argued into it, not because the scripture suddenly means something different to him. He had it memorized. This is the crucial point we can't back off of. In a world full of reason and education and apologetics, don't forget, Saul doesn't become Paul until he has a revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Christianity cannot be thought into. And I think that's Paul's argument. We do not think the way the world thinks. The weapons of our warfare are not humankind. They are not as humanity does. And how does humanity do it? Up here. They reason their way. They call it common sense, or they call it intellect, or they call it wisdom. And Paul says, we don't exist merely on that plane. Oh, we exist on that plane. We have common sense, and we use our brains, and we go get educated, and, and we read, and we study, and we wrestle. But we don't win spiritual battles up here. We don't. We, we have battlefields of the mind, but we don't conquer because we didn't become followers of Jesus because we were talked into it. We didn't become followers of Jesus because we were convinced through intellect or apologetics. See, I, I have no problem with, with scriptural apologetics. I just I don't get into it much. And, and apologetics is really the proof of these things in the past and whether they fall into historical timelines or literal timelines or mythological timelines. And there are people that do a brilliant job of Christian apologetics and Hebrew apologetics. I leave that to other people. I'm not all that fascinated by it because I'm not a follower of Jesus because I'm convinced in the historicity of Noah's Ark. Or I truly believe David dropped a giant with a rock and a slingshot. That makes me believe in Jesus. No, because I don't think intellect will keep you following Jesus. I think a revelation of Jesus and his love, something happens to you in the journey. That's transformative. That takes you from a mental ascent to thinking about God to a spiritual ascent of believing that something happened to you inside, believing that you had an experience. And this is why the experience of meeting Christ can never take a back seat to education. And it doesn't mean education's wrong or book smarts or, or wisdom or studying. None of that's wrong, but it doesn't save us. And it doesn't, it doesn't get us into and it doesn't keep us in the love of the Father. So Paul had all of it memorized. Didn't do him any good. He's highly moral. Didn't do him any good. He knew the scriptures. Didn't do him any good. What did him good was meeting Christ on the road to Damascus. He had to encounter Jesus. And so I think one of the mistakes we make is this feeling that we can argue people into the faith. That if we could just figure out how to prove creation and prove the stories of Genesis and prove the genealogy of Abraham and prove there was a real Jesus and prove that there was an empty tomb, then we would somehow convince the world of Christ. And folks, it doesn't work that way. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't come to Christ through the same lens that we come into loving history or science, or civics, or politics, or economics, where we read and we listen and we wrestle and we work this out through experience. But we also don't need to be afraid of those things because they take a backseat to revelation. Let me say that again. All of that other stuff actually takes a backseat to revelation. How do we know? Because Paul said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee of Pharisees, and I could trace my blood lineage back to Abraham. And he says all of this to the church at Philippi. And then he concludes with, but I consider all of it dung for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. So everything I brought to the table that was good, smart, well-wrestled, well-thought-out, memorized, he said, it really didn't make me who I am. What made me who I am is meeting Christ and spending time with Jesus. And then in that, I realize that there's more than meets the eye. And there's more than just book smart. And there's more than just wisdom. And there's more than mere intelligence. But in that, uh, I, I, I learned to follow him. Now, let me, let me try to 
separate this into a, a thought process that I've been working through for, for some time. There's the knowledge of the head and there's the knowledge of the heart. Okay? And in most of our, that's not even, that's not like a religious thing or a spiritual, or even a Christianity thing. It's a lot of people consider that the difference in intellect and emotion. Because from a worldly standard, from a system of the world, we would say you have your smarts and you have your hearts. And your smarts are based on intelligence, wisdom, study, experience, life lessons, wrestlings, musings. This is based on how you feel. This is based on your emotion, your, your emotional stability. Um, and in that, this loses in the system of the world. Because what we say is, oh, you just feel that way, but you know better. Through the system of the world, our brains are smarter than our hearts. That's kind of how we teach people. Like your heart is uneducated and naive. Your brain's smarter than that. Use your common sense. Think this through. Don't follow. We, we, I think we consider our heart less mature. Like it's so enraged with emotion, it can't be trusted. Oh, you just feel that way. But when you get a little older, you'll see things differently. Hey, by the way, that's not some brilliant stroke of genius when you tell people that when you get older, you'll see things differently. How could you not? You've seen more. I mean, it's not a matter of you got smarter. I know people that got older that didn't get smarter. It doesn't have anything to do with I got older, therefore I got stuff figured out. Sometimes the only way you figured things out is everything you've ever tried didn't work. All you really know is 86 things that don't work. You still haven't figured out any that do. Are you smarter? Yes, by default. So it's not a stroke of genius. It's not as if a ray of light shown to show you that the heart loses to the head. I think through the lens of the world, through the system of man, we kind of feel as if the heart should take a back seat to the experience of the head. And I disagree, not in every single category, of course. I mean, there are, there are times when we're following our emotions and we're not really paying attention to what's around us. But I think it's almost an attack against revelation. As if having a revelation of God's love, you're naive if you believe that. Because you should be trying to prove there's a God first. Don't tell me God loves you. You can't even prove to me there's a God. And we almost shirk back like we should stop talking about loving God and being loved by God because we can't prove whether or not Moses was a real person or not. And so we sort of, and, and this has happened to a lot of us in Christianity, is that somehow we have to shrink away to the revelatory experience of having met Christ, thinking that the heart following Jesus isn't nearly as well thought out as the mind that follows Jesus. And so what we have done is we've gotten scared of the mind in Christianity. We've gotten scared of intelligence, scared of questions. Don't ask questions because that'll throw people off that are weak in their faith. Don't have an open Q&A forum and let just anybody raise their hand and ask a question, because what if so-and-so down here it doesn't really know if they follow the Lord or not? And then you ask this really deep question, and then they're down here going, ooh, I never thought about that. And you don't want to be the one that leads them away from the faith. I couldn't disagree with that. Any, it's not possible for me to disagree with that, the, that theory more. And let me tell you why. A faith that hasn't doubted isn't faith, okay? If you haven't had some wrestlings where you didn't know the answer, you don't know what you believe. You just believe the last thing you heard. And until you wrestle out some maybes and some possibilities, then you don't have a faith. You just have some ideas. And you should never be scared of the mind and the intellect and intelligence and wrestling because we didn't get saved because we figured stuff out. We gave our hearts to Christ because we had a revelation of who He is, a revelation of His love, and we follow that love. And then if questions come in, you go, ooh, is that logical? Does that make sense? Does that line up with this? That's fine. Fire away. Because this never overtakes what happened in me, who I know he is at a deep place in my heart. So if I got 10 questions and all of them are challenging what my faith says, I'm all right. Don't worry. The challenge is okay. 
Faith can stand against the questions and stand with the questions. And if you haven't asked them, how do you know what you believe? Like you believe something, but you've never questioned it. Is it a real belief? I think we fall into this trap as parents. What happens as parents is we're raising our kids and we want them to love the Lord and we want them to know the Lord loves them because ultimately we don't want to raise some jerks that are worse for the planet than if they had never been born. Ooh, that's pretty harsh. Well, you want to raise some kids you want to hang out with and you'd like to raise some kids that make the world a better place to live in rather than no one wants to be around them because they're snots. Okay, And so we kind of take that personally, go, I'm going to try to do my best. But what I really want to do is raise men and women of God. I want to raise someone who goes out here and lives for the king and the kingdom. And in that, they make their world better and they make the world around them better. And so what we do is we pour everything we can into them about, yes, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so, which is a really good place to start. And we keep pouring into them God's love and we keep pouring into them identity. And if we're not careful, we'll shield them from hard questions because hard questions are way over their head. And the fear is that the hard questions will destabilize their faith. We've got them believing in a good God and he's just and he's loving. And then you come in here and ask a question about the vengeance of the Old Testament. And now I've got to go over here and answer why God looks like this in Joshua, but Jesus looks like this in John. And I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with those difficult questions. And I don't want to be, I, I, want to, I don't know how to answer the proof texts or apologetics. And so we stay away altogether. And listen, why would you go fire stuff over people's head before they're ready for it? I'm not advocating we set them down with a doctoral thesis on eschatology when they're you know, heading into kindergarten so they can answer all the questions of the end times. But at the same time, because we're so afraid to let their faith be challenged, we atrophy their ability to learn the difference between hearing the voice of the Spirit. We cause them to lean towards their head instead of their heart because leaning towards their head, we've only given them so much information and anything that challenges that we call it demonic or antichrist or satanic or we say that if you ask those questions, what's your problem? Don't you believe? If you really believed, you'd never ask those questions. And then lo and behold, you're a 40 or 50 year old believer who's never once challenged your own faith. And then when tragedy hits your life, you have a difficult time moving forward because you've never been challenged in what you believe. We've made the weapons of our warfare carnal when we don't allow the experience of the heart to trump all of those other things. So don't run from the challenge of question. It's a good thing. Doubt is faith's best friend. Where faith hasn't met doubt, I don't think faith's been challenged. What, now, unbelief? Well, that's a different animal. That's where faith has been challenged and decided that it doesn't exist. That's unbelief. That's where faith says, I, I don't believe that. I have unbelief in some areas that I used to have belief. I mean, just confession time. I have unbelief in some areas about God that I used to have faith in. I don't believe that about God anymore. That's not just doubt. That's straight up unbelief. I don't believe that about God. I got there by the wrestling winning over what I thought was my experience. Well, how do we do this? We let the Holy Spirit in to assist in the difficult work because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of whatever our strongholds are. And what are our strongholds? It's the thought process that sets itself against God and works so hard against God. So stop arguing people into faith that doesn't work. And don't argue them into faith. And you don't argue to keep them in faith. Let's don't back off of the experience of meeting Christ. All right? Now, does that mean that it's an instantaneous light bulb? Not always. I don't think people come to Jesus always on instantaneous light bulbs. Like they had never heard of him, then you tell them about him, and then boom, they believe in Jesus and all the darkness is gone. I think we know better. I think people walk into faith. They walk into the delight of his love, and they take a step back. And they walk into the light of his love, and they take a step back. And they keep that process, that journey towards the Lord. This is why salvation is not a one-time event. Salvation is an ongoing event. Everyone in this room has had an experience with Christ. You've been saved. Everyone in this room is being saved. 
from things that are happening up here and things that are happening in here and things that are happening out there, being saved as you walk this out. The issue is we all love each other. We know one another's names and we know one another's emotions a little bit and we know a little bit of one another's stories, but we don't entirely know each other's journey no matter how much we think we do. And so there's stuff going on in your head that is very representative of your journey where you are with Christ. And in that, I step in, someone steps in, and interjects my journey. And I tell you where I am. And the tendency is to want to push people to where we are or pull people from the abyss, away from the ledge. And I think the key to what Paul says is that it's, we place them not into the obedience of our church or our, our doctrine or our religion, but we put them in the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? I mean, I mean truly, what would it mean to bring your thoughts into the captivity of Christ, into the obedience that Christ was in? Well, it seems like it means that Christ could have followed his emotion. Christ could have followed what he quote-unquote wanted to do, but... He follows what he hears his father say to him in each of these instances, in each of these moments. I don't think there's a better example than the wilderness where Jesus goes down into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He's led by the Holy Spirit. And when he is there, the devil begins to speak to Jesus and he addresses him in an intellectual fashion. If this be true, if that be true, do this, do that. We'll shortcut your way to possession. We'll, I'll give you the kingdom. And Jesus has to fight all of the natural tendencies of this world and acquiesce himself to what God has said about him. And only in that does he conquer the enemy. So much so that by the time we get to the foot washing in John 13, the Bible says that Jesus, knowing that all things had been delivered to him and knowing what was to come, knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. There's such a powerful moment there where Jesus does what he does because he has an assurance in his heart. Intellectually, no assurance that he's the king. There's nothing on the surface that proves that to him. And yet his heart knows what he has heard God say. Jesus is our ultimate example of following the wisdom of the heart, even over the, the natural things of the head. Let me, let me share with you. There's a couple of scriptures I want to jump to here in a second, but I, I want to share for you a quote. I, I, I just love this. This is from a 17th century. Uh, Blaise Pascal was a, was a mathematician. He was a, um, a lot of things, philosopher but he was also a, a Catholic theologian, a French Catholic theologian of the 17th century. This is, this is one of those statements that sort of set the pattern for this head versus heart battle. This is a fascinating few sentences. The heart has its reasons of which reasons know nothing. We know this in countless ways. It is the heart which perceives God and not the reason. That is why faith is... God perceived by the heart and not by reason. What a statement. Faith is God perceived by the heart, not subservient to the head. So I got to figure God out before I'll follow him. None of us came to Christ that way. We don't figure God out. You don't figure God out after you come to Christ. You certainly don't wait till you figure God out to come to you. If you keep waiting around to figure God out, you're going to figure anything out. It's an experience of the heart that has a revelation of who Christ is, and then the heart trumps all of those other things. God perceived by the heart, not by reason. And you might say, well, you still should have to receive him by reason. I don't disagree. I think your mind needs to line up with your heart. I think this is a great challenge of Christianity and renewing the mind. Renew the mind, renew the mind, renew the mind. Why are we being told to repent, 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 repent? It's not just because we have bad thoughts about God. It's because our mind isn't lining up with our heart. And so we work to line our mind up with our heart. Our heart's the stable point. Our mind's the drift point. Our mind kind of runs around and it is a slave to our experience. And sometimes our mind runs because it's been infiltrated with other information that's pulled us away from the center of our faith. But that's okay. We, we keep repenting and renewing and letting the mind line up to where the heart would be and where the heart is. Take the experience of the heart as the place where you meet Christ. Why is that important? Because you don't get mad that your ear can't smell. 
I know that's a, a silly illustration, but see how simple that is? You get that immediately. You don't get mad that your ear can't smell. Your ear's not supposed to smell. It's not, it doesn't, you don't stick it down there in front of the pizza to figure out if it... Now, why do we get that? We go, well, because that's obvious. Okay, yes, it's obvious. And the experience of meeting Christ is a hard experience. Christ said, if any man is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his belly, out of his heart, shall flow rivers of living water. Out of here, not here, but out of here, shall flow everything he needs to sustain him. So just as you don't get mad at your ear because it can't smell, don't, get, don't think that a Christianity based on a heart experience is less valid than someone's religious experience based on a head. Because the heart's the place where you meet Christ. And then everything else gets infiltrated. The heart, we start here. And it works its way out. This is why I can't pull you on your journey. You see, the heart, God has moved into Eduardo at some point in his life. And then that experience is permeating all the areas of his life. Now, it's permeating his physical man and it's permeating his mental man and it's permeating his emotional man, but it's doing more than that. It, it's also permeating his relationship with Marisol and his relationship with his children and his relationship with his employees and his employers and his classmates and his next door neighbor. It doesn't always look like it is, but it is because it started in here and then it starts to work its way out like a river of living water that just keeps finding crevices to go into. It doesn't trickle from a place of knowledge into a place of relationship. It trickles from relationship and permeates all of that our hands touch. This is why you can't interrupt people on the journey because the truth is we've met Christ the same even though we didn't have the same testimony, we've met the same Christ, but it's, the river's not doing the same thing in us. And if I think it must do the same thing in us, then I will push my brother or I will pull my brother and I will atrophy his ability to follow the Spirit and I might ruin his walk because I demand that he move in the same place that I'm moving. When you get this, you'll stop judging people. Because why would you judge somebody? You don't know where they are. You don't know how far down the road they are. You go, well, they ought to know that by now. Well, what do you think you ought to know by now? That you don't know by now. That if you had been paying attention, you would have known by now. Or what about the stuff you don't know by now because you're too lazy to wrestle? And, and you go, well, yeah, but, you know, I've got this going on and that going on. We're always going to have a reason why when it comes to us being the one under the spotlight. So don't turn it on other people. This is going to be one of those things we get into in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the whole judge not lest you be judged because you're going to end up getting it in the same place that you project it. It's going to come right back at you. And so because it's a journey and we're not, though we are in the flesh, our journey is not fleshly. Paul said, though we are humanity, our journey is not like the rest of humankind. What our journey really looks like. Let me go contextually. This is 2 Corinthians. We've been in 2 Corinthians 10. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 1. I want to share this with you because this to me is Paul's message of what this really looks like. And this is his way of saying, remember we were in 2 Corinthians 10. That's way up there. Rewind to 1 Corinthians 1. This is one of his first things he says to the Corinthian church. And this is Paul trying to describe what salvation really looks like. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What an admission. You tell people about the cross that don't care? That's stupid. It's foolish to talk about God died 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. What good is that going to do me? So that, Paul knew that. And he was in that generation. He's going, trust me, we don't follow people that die on crosses. People that die on crosses are criminals. They're losers. So he's going to be a hard time winning people to Jesus if all we got is the cross. He goes, it's foolish as people are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, the cross is a whole different message. Because if I've actually met Christ in, in here, then the cross isn't a piece of wood with a dude dying that probably deserved to die. The cross becomes the place I die. 
The cross becomes where everything about me dies. The cross becomes the prelude to an empty tomb. Empty tombs mean I get to live again. The cross becomes my transition point. The cross becomes my rejoicing. I'm not embarrassed of the cross. I celebrate the cross. It's not foolishness to me. I'm being saved. See, I'm not all the way there, but I'm on my way there. And part of what I'm on my way to is living out of this place of a revelation in the heart to those of us being saved, not to those of us who are saved, but to those of us who are on the journey. We're working this out. The cross means something to me because it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom because you can't. You will not meet God through wisdom. In the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God. You can't apologetics your way into proving God. If you think Christianity is going to be based on you figuring stuff out up here, give up. We don't figure stuff out up here. We start in here and we let this infiltrate every other area of our life. If since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, God decided that through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. So look at that. Through the foolishness of preaching what? The foolishness of the cross. So the foolishness of actually telling people that Jesus died on their behalf. That's the basis of our faith. That's the hope. I had a young man ask me this week, um, don't you think it's possible that Christianity is just the crutch of people who are suffering? And I said, I would counter by asking you to consider that life itself is suffering. So what better option do you have than to make meaning out of your life by watching the ultimate sufferer? If you're going to suffer anyway, wouldn't it mean something if you had a template by which to suffer? And I'm not trying to intellectualize this young man into he's already a believer, but he's asking good questions. So I thought if life is suffering, and if you don't think it is, you haven't lived long enough. If life is suffering, I don't mean every second of life, but life is suffering. It's part of it. And if it isn't now, you will say goodbye to someone you love and then tell me if life is suffering. And so whatever you suffer, however you suffer, you can call Christianity a crutch if you'd like. Paul said, fine, that's the mental acumen of those who look at the cross as foolishness and everyone that follows it's a fool because you are all in need of a crutch. Great, but for those of us being saved in our suffering, to see someone suffer on our behalf becomes the template by which we pick up the cross and follow Jesus into the worst hell we can find because we're going to be in that hell anyway and it sure would be nice to, to know that someone rolled the stone away on the other side and that if he came out, I can come out. If that's a crutch... Grab it. That's 1 Corinthians 1. That's Paul saying, that's what the cross stands in front of you as. It can be the place where a, a fool died 2,000 years ago outside of, of Jerusalem, if you'd like, and you can intellectually be brilliant. Or it can be the place where you die. And you see in him your death. And what do you know is coming? Tomorrow a stone rolling away, and a resurrection. And that is where my heart meets my Savior. And that's why we follow Jesus. You don't get it all figured out intellectually? It's okay. You don't ever have to have it all figured out. You don't have to, you don't have to then but, but treat education as if it's an enemy. It's not an enemy to be educated. It's not an enemy to learn. In fact, the more you learn, the more you might Ask better questions. It's also a good place to be, where the questions get a little more intense about your relationship, about who you are. So I ask you one final question, which leads me to a Jesus story. What happens when your revelation runs into other people's revelation? <laughs> what happens when your journey hits the crossroads of her journey or his journey? and you're not on the same page. 
and you run the risk of being a great offense to someone else, or someone else runs the risk of being a great offense to you. The ability to keep from being offended is one of the great markers of your own spiritual maturity. The easier you are to offend, probably, the less mature you are in following the Spirit. I don't mean that you'll grow to a place where you are never offended. You are human. And it happens. But learning who we are in Christ helps to free us from some of those areas. So what happens when we run into that sort of crossroads? We conquer our own arguments by taking them to the mat, squaring them up either with or against our faith, but we don't conquer our neighbor's arguments. And one of our great failures is that we think we are responsible to conquer other people's arguments. So if you come to me and you have a problem with something spiritually, and we in ministry really feel this way, I feel like I have some sort of moral obligation to help hold your hand through this battle so that we get you out to the other side of truth. The problem is, if I do that, you'll inadvertently make a golden calf out of me and my ministry. It's just what we do. Because once you find someone who can walk you through your argument to the other side, they become a savior to you in that argument. They may not be the savior of your soul, but they helped save you from that disaster. And when people become your savior, you are set up for an even greater problem in the end. And so it is great to listen to people wrestle and hear their story and hear their testimony and realize that it might not be yours. And it might not be how you land on that. And it might not be where you're supposed to land on that. Know the difference. You won't be shocked to find that Jesus did. He knew the difference. He knew that when his revelation met other people's revelations, they weren't always on the same page. And one thing you'll notice that is spectacular about Jesus is his refusal to pull people to his level. One of the most obvious ones is in healing. You remember the story where a man came to Jesus and he says, my daughter is at home and she is dying. He says, you need to come to my house and pray for her. And so Jesus starts the journey through town to his house to pray for her. And on his way there, a woman with an issue of blood who has been bleeding for 12 years, who has spent money and has not gotten better but has only gotten worse, elbows her way through the crowd and reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment and instantly she is made whole of her plague. And Jesus stops and turns and, and says to her, Daughter, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. And he turns around to be met by the servants of the house he's going to. And the servants say, forget it. She's already died. And you would think that if you were the dad and you were dragging Jesus through the street, you would have watched a woman get what she needed by touching the hem of his garment. And you might have dispensed with this whole let's go to my house bit. You might say, hey, if you can heal her and she didn't even ask, she just reached out and grabbed your coat. Is there anything you could do for my daughter? But instead, no. And you know Jesus had to think that. Like, hey, why don't we just snap our fingers right now and take care of this whole daughter sickness bit? But instead, he goes right along with the level of faith that drags him all the way to the house so that he can go get made fun of. He walks himself into getting made fun of because he walks in and goes, she's not dead, she's asleep. And the Bible says everybody laughed at him. So he kicked them all out of the room. And he doesn't preach a sermon. And he doesn't elevate everyone's faith. And he doesn't drag them down the road and go, look where you could be if you'd follow where I am. Instead, he does the miraculous. Because sometimes in our ignorance or our naivete, we need the miraculous. It's the only way that we're going to make it. And thank God for the experience of the miraculous. Never discount it, by the way. The experience of the miraculous. And pray for it. You want to go, let me, let me, let me time out before I give you my text. You go back to that moment where you're raising your kids, you're trying to raise them right, and you're, you're, you're trying to get them in God and get God in them, and you, you unleash the ability for them to ask questions, and they ask some weird ones, and then they're out here on side branches, and you don't, you're darn near an agnostic now, or an atheist, because they've been asking all these weird questions. I don't know how to answer this, this is why I tried to shelter them from this stuff. Stop praying, for the love of God, stop praying that they intellectually come to Christ. Stop sending them books on the theologies and the materials and YouTube links to so-and-so's sermon. It's a simple prayer and it takes faith. Father, show them Jesus. If they don't have an experience with Jesus, the head knowledge isn't going to work. So right where they are, way off at college, over here in their relationships, running from God, drunk in a ditch, show them Jesus. 
God, this is on you. If you can appear to Saul on the road to Damascus, you meet my kid. And they'll know you when they see you because they watched it in mom and dad. And then you just pray that consistently and repeatedly. And you let Jesus hunt them down. And you let the Holy Spirit track them every second of their lives. And you trust that the God that knows what you don't know knows a lot more than you know and can do way more than you can do. So let's close with Jesus running into someone else. It's a story that rarely gets preached. It's just not one of the, it's only in one gospel, which I could give you reasons for that, but we'll leave it. Matthew 17, 24. When they came, they as Jesus and his disciples, when they came to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? 25. He said, yes. This is Peter talking. Peter says, yes, he pays the temple tax. Don't worry about Jesus. So when he came into the house, Jesus anticipated him and said, what do you think, Simon? Simon is Peter, by the way. From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or do they take them from strangers? So who, get, who t- gets taxed? Does the king tax the prince or does he tax the pauper? Obvious answer, right? You know Jesus is setting us up. Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Okay. Another translation is the sons are exempt. Okay. The stranger gets taxed, the sons don't get taxed. The sons are exempt. Okay. Jesus has a theology that the son is exempt from the temple tax because he's not a servant under the old covenant. And under the old covenant, they had an old covenant priesthood, Exodus chapter 30. And you brought in coins for a physical silver tax every time there was an annual census of Israel. And the coins was so that the priest could, could buy the stuff that doesn't come in through the sacrifice. Because what comes in through the sacrifice is flour and oil and meat. Those are on the altar. The priest gets to keep the, what's left after the sacrifice. But there's no salt and there's no miscellaneous that they can live their day-to-day lives in any of the sacrifices. So the temple tax allowed them to buy what the sacrifice couldn't give them. This was God's way of providing for the priesthood. Only necessary under an Old Testament paradigm. And Jesus goes, if you lived in a world where you were a son, not a slave, would you have to pay the tax? And Peter goes, well, no, you wouldn't have to pay the tax if you lived in a world where you were a son. And Jesus is saying, are you a son or are you a slave? Well, the answer is what? Well, I'm a son. And the next response should be, then why would you pay a temple tax? Nevertheless, lest we offend them. Oh, here it is. I wouldn't even have to read the rest of the verse. You know it's going to be something in which Jesus is sensitive to the place someone else is. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first. When you open its mouth, you're going to find a piece of money. Take that, give it to them for me and you. I'm going to drop the miraculous in for one good reason. Not because you need it. Because we don't want to offend their faith. As I wrestle through this passage, it convinces me that Jesus was willing to take his revelation and shelve it to meet your revelation and your fear and your faith. And we live in a world where more and more We want to prove our individual intelligence, liberty, and worth by showing people who are ignorant, foolish, and sheeples exactly how free we are. And I have a feeling that Jesus was mature enough to shelve his own personal revelation unless we offend someone else's sensibility. This was a highly controversial moment. Only Matthew tells you this story because it was rare. It's possible this was the first time in Jesus' life they had exacted the temple tax. And here's why. In Exodus, they exacted it when they needed to, and then it vanished until Nehemiah. And Nehemiah exacted it again so they could rebuild the temple and the walls. And then it vanished again. And for some reason, it surfaces in Matthew. It's also very possible that it only surfaced to trap someone like Jesus who had just told them 
He's the temple. And so they reenact the temple tax to see how Jesus will respond to that. And Jesus' response is, I don't have to pay a tax. I'm the son. But nevertheless, in case my revelation offends them, go fishing. It'll pay for both of us. I'm impressed. I can't help it. I'm amazed. I don't know why. I'm not shocked. I'm impressed, but not shocked. It's classic Jesus. It's Jesus walking in, knowing exactly what the Father thinks about him, but knowing that you have a different opinion of what the Father thinks about you. And rather than berate you and pull you up to his level and shove you into his revelation, his end of the pool, he walks to your end of the pool because that's Jesus. When a centurion comes to Jesus and goes, my servant is at home, vexed with the devil, sick. Jesus goes, let's go to your house, I'll heal him. And the servant says, I'll just speak the word. If you speak the word, he'd be healed. And Jesus turns to the crowd and says, this is it, man. Look at this faith. I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. You have what you need. Go home, your servant's healed. It's incredible. What do we do with that? You're walking in revelation in this world. Whatever that is. It's for you. Love it. Revel in it. Roll around in it. Enjoy it. If you come up against someone, with someone, near someone that doesn't have it, don't intellectualize. Don't drag them up, drag them down, push them in, push them out. Love them. Walk this walk with people. The weapons of your warfare are not carnal. Carnality is the feeling that you have a job to do to change the world. God doesn't invite you to change the world. He invites you to participate in Him changing the world. That's it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You, you did it. You took us down some roads. <laughs> I've enjoyed the journey. I pray that this room has enjoyed it. I pray that those who watch enjoy it. I pray others are as challenged as I am. But I pray that each person does with it as you walk it out in them to do with it. Teach us over and again that we do not live this according to the head. We live this according to the heart. But we don't have to fear what comes into the head because it's no match for the revelation of Jesus. And let it cause us to ask questions and let it lead us to wrestling. We'll be okay because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.